Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. I've only just got back. It's two o'clock now. I've only just got back from a ride with Monica. This is the problem when the weather's so nice. We're still in Barcelona. It's 24 degrees, blue sky, you know, ready for work at 9am. Uh, and then Monica and I decide, look, let's just go for a quick ride into town. Go to our favourite coffee shop in Barcelona. Grab a coffee then, quickly come back. Well, that coffee turned into coffee and a sandwich. And that coffee and a sandwich then turned into a two-hour walk around Barcelona. And that two-hour walk around Barcelona ended up turning into about a three-and-a-half-hour walk around Barcelona. And before you know it, by the time we're back, it's two o'clock. And I've done absolutely nothing. So... Return now from a lovely ride into the city. And the first thing I want to do, get on with the podcast, because I've got some I've got some great emails and messages to get through. And I'm going to start with Sean. Right, here goes. Freddie, how important is service history for a motorcycle? I ask this as a fair number of bikes I've come across seem to have varying levels of service history. So you have the bikes that have been serviced every year religiously, but you also have the bikes that have been serviced based on the mileage. In this case, the stamps are a lot further apart in time. For example, I was looking at a 2013 Triumph Tiger Explorer. It had done 30,000 miles and had only had three service stamps. These were at 582 miles, 10,000 miles, and 18,000 miles. The last one done in 2016, having always meticulously stuck to service intervals, intervals, is this something I should just look past? You know, this, this really is polarizing, Sean, because, you know, both my dad and I have polarizing opinions on this. I'm very lax with this kind of thing. My dad always sticks religiously to the, the dealer or the manufacturer you know, prompted service intervals. Actually, for my dad, even if he hasn't done the mileage needed in a year, he will still get it serviced from the main dealer. He's one, one end of the extreme, and, my, and I'm probably, to be honest, the other end of the extreme, because my personal opinion is, in fact, if I just say in general, if we're looking at motorbikes, they are slightly different animals to cars, because, number one, a lot of the time they don't get used much, and if they don't get used much... You know, is there any point changing the oil every year if it's only done 600 miles in a year or so? You know, I've got an engineer and a mechanic friend. He's got two Triumphs, one Street Triple and one Speed Twin. He always, always makes sure these bikes are spot on. I mean, the slightest blemish anywhere. And he will make sure that it gets rectified immediately by him. But he doesn't do big mileage. So... A lot of the time, there are going to be gaps, maybe of three years in the service history of his bikes, but they're spot on. But there will be a three-year gap of any form of service or maintenance. Now, I know him, so I know that his bikes are always perfect, always, in essence, as good as new. They really are that good. But if you look at the service history, well, then you're going to see an extremely blotchy service history. And, And... You know, we as bikers, unlike with cars, a lot of bikers, like myself, who would be too scared to work on their car, more than happy to work on a bike. You know, and then I think, how many times have I done an oil change on my bike? So one thing I probably try and do, you know, according to the the manufacturer, once every, I think, 8,000 miles. But the amount of times I've done that oil change, 
and I've lost and or chucked away the receipt for the filter and the oil. You know, so it looks like, from a service history point of view, you know, nothing's been done to it. The, the prospective buyer is purely taking my word for the fact that, oh, I did the oil change six months ago, you know, it's no more than my word. So it is more of a minefield with bikes often than cars. But from my point of view, there's absolutely nothing to worry about if a bike has slightly patchy service history. I really honestly believe this. Uh, and having a decent chunk of experience buying bikes and cars, obviously not to make any money because I always lose money, but just experience purely buying them and enjoying them. I honestly believe that bikes now, they're, they're so incredibly well made. You know, how often? You know, I've had some cars with mind-blowingly colossal mileage. I've had bikes with 67,000 miles on the clock. How often really, you know, does an engine just die nowadays? I think I've owned five cars with mileage over 160,000 miles. Not one of them, not one of them has ever had an issue with the engine. Not one of them's ever died after my ownership. The only car I've ever had that, with an engine that's died is an atrocious smart car with a 0.8 litre diesel engine and it died at 38,000 miles and it had full service history. That is the only car I've ever owned where it's simply died and had to be sold as scrap. Relatively speaking, I, I truly, truly believe this and I welcome anyone hitting back at me here. Modern vehicles, modern motorcycles... The engines are going to go on longer than most of our lifetimes or longer than what we realistically are ever going to be able to ride on them. They're not going to die. So if you get to a bike and you have a look at it and it's got no service history and it looks a bit iffy or it looks iffy on paper, but you get there and you turn the bike on, you let it tick over and the engine sounds sweet and you look at the frame. You know, the great thing about cars is there's nothing to hide Whereas on a car, it's relatively easy to hide things, you know, with all the bodywork and the different panels. But bikes, you can see everything. So if it looks good, if the frame looks good, if the service, not the service history, if, if the vehicle history going onto a vehicle checker checks out and the engine ticks over nicely, there isn't a huge amount of stuff that can go wrong. And with this, you can often go to private sellers and get a significant discount, you know, Unless you're going really, really high-end with some kind of £30,000 Ducati, parts are usually fairly inexpensive for motorbikes as well. So I, I strongly, strongly would not let it worry you at all, Sean. As long as you get a good feeling from the bike, you know, the advert, the seller, clearly, you know, he's liked that bike in the past or he still loves that bike that he's selling just to move on to a new bike or something like that. I, I would not even worry for one moment that, you know, there, there are going to be any issues with the bike. The only slight thing I ever, I ever question sometimes when I'm looking at a bike, how many previous owners has it had? Because if I know, if I know the bike's been passed around, you know, once every eight or nine months, once a year, that sometimes puts alarm bells out there for me because... You know, look, is there something wrong with this bike? Some, something that, you know, just is annoying every single owner. For a reason they keep on selling and selling and moving it on and moving it on. 
that's probably the only thing I may slightly look at. You know, is it an unusually large amount of previous owners it's had? If it's not, you know, if it's a bike with almost no service history, but it's been owned by the same person, I'll, I'll go for it without any question. Sean, I hope that's helped. I'll move on. My God, I'm rambling. I think I was answering that for about seven minutes. Apologies, Sean. I hope that's helped. Have a great day, Sean. I'm moving on to Cal. Uh, Freddie, I hope all's well. You mentioned films that feature motorbikes in the last podcast and some favourites. Let me just move this chair. Sorry if that's a funny noise. It was actually a book that tickled my interest in bikes, a book called Shantaram, which was recently, or which has recently, been made into a series on Apple TV featuring Charlie Hunnam about an Australian convict who escapes and flees to India and is gifted a royal emerald from a gangster to which he modifies. It speaks to him about whizzing through the busy traffic to coffee shops and all kinds of adventures, which got my attention. This and the TV show where Guy Martin recreates the great escape motorbike jump on a triumph is probably where my love of classics came from. I'd love to hear where all of the listeners' first interest in bikes came from. All the best, Cal. Yes, please, anyone, let me know just where did your interest in motorbikes come from? And I have to say, Cal, I had not, do you know, I'd never heard of the story of Shantaram. So I did a quick Google. I did Shantaram Charlie Hunnam. If anyone doesn't know Charlie Hunnam, brilliant British actor. He was in Sons of Anarchy. He's a very, very good actor. I'm a big fan of his. And the trailer for this Shantaram, it looks absolutely superb. You've got that. You know, everything that's great about biking, the, the adventure, the excitement, visiting a far-off land, you know, yeah, mixed up with some gangsters. I mean, that just, it just sounds like pure adventure. This is definitely going to be the next show I watch. I must, I don't know, I'm going to have to get the subscription for Apple TV, I think. I don't think I've got it. I think I've got Amazon and Netflix, so I must get this because this looks like one of the best TV series if the trailer is anything to go on, that I'll have seen in a long time. So that is, for anyone curious about this, Shantaram, Charlie Hunnam. Still for me, still Cal, is the great escape. Steve McQueen, just watching him racing away from the Nazis. That's still, it's still the number one for me. And Sons of Anarchy, funnily enough, with Charlie Hunnam, when I was learning to ride, I was addicted to watching that. Very strange. I just dreamt of being a Harley rider in a biking gang. I don't know why, it's so so funny. Don't know why, don't worry, I kind of got that out of my system, although I do actually still want a Harley Davidson. I move on. This is from Steve. So Steve's got two questions here. I'm going to do this part one, part two. Hi, Freddie. What's, okay, what's your current shortlist for new bikes, including an update on your ordering of the BSA Gold Star? Yeah, Steve. You know, it's funny with the BSA Gold Star. I don't think anyone's taken delivery of them yet. So it's just kind of gone a bit quiet on, on my level of enthusiasm for it. For no other reason than it's simply, it's just not out yet. But, you know, these are six and a half thousand pounds. So just 300 pounds more than the Interceptor. And that weight distribution for me means it's a much more appealing bike, even before actually riding it. I also know that single cylinder engines can be glorious because... The Royal Enfield Classic 350 is a stunner of an engine. So it's, it's really high up on my list. The fact that the seat height's low as well. I love that laid-back, easygoing kind of ride. And that BSA Gold Star will be spot on. 
I also love about that, just, you know, it's just got just a slightly elevated level of creature comforts over even the Bonneville, for example. You know, just little things that, that you get in a slightly more modern bike. Very, very simple, but, you know, there's a USB uh, connector, adapter, just nicely nicely connected to the handlebars, so I don't need to worry about doing any of my own wiring. You know, that connector's there, so I can just plug in, for example, to my quad lock, charge my phone. Just little things like that do make it genuinely appealing. So that bike is definitely on my shortlist, although I'll be honest, I semi-started forgetting about it because it's taking so long to get the deliveries. I, I want to know it's coming out soon, but I'm curious about that. It's definitely in my shortlist. My only question, uh, now... Now I've got this new battery on the Bonneville. It's all the bike I've ever dreamt of. And I, I really genuinely hand on heart mean that. The Bonneville is my idea of a dream motorbike. And now that it's completely faultlessly reliable, I would trust it to ride anywhere. You know, it's got the reliability. It's got the, the performance I dream of. 65 horsepower. It's perfect. It's comfortable for two up. Oh, the looks for me, they never age. It looks stunning. It's going to have to be something quite special to, to wrench me away from that. And my question is, will the BSA Gold Star be significantly different to do that? The other bikes on my shortlist, Triumph Speedmaster 1200, that is very possibly my favorite bike I've ever ridden. Second hand, maybe if you're lucky, just under 9,000 um, pounds. And that bike is art. It's just pure art. I, I'm a huge fan of that. Another one, Harley-Davidson Softail Standard, the cheapest bike in the Harley-Davidson Softail range. I could be straight out of... <clears throat> straight out of the 60s or 70s. The only problem, I think it's about £13,000, and that is a lot of money. And even secondhand, you're going to be lucky to get it for less than 11k. And that's a big, big chunk of money. We then add, and this genuinely is in my list, it really is, very strong contender, Royal Enfield Super Meteor. Could this be the modern-day equivalent of the Harley-Davidson Sportster 883. Could it have that character and that soul that the 883 Sportster had, wrapped up in just enough of the modernness, you know, to, to give you a bit of that peace of mind, you know, just enough there so you'd, you'd be happily crossing Europe on it or doing huge tours in it without worrying about it spewing oil all over the place. So that would be my final shortlist. And you know what? I am, Steve. I'm fairly, I'm fairly strong on that shortlist, as in I don't think it's going to change. I don't think there's going to be another bike that comes out that could sway me away from that shortlist. Harley-Davidson Softail Standard, Triumph Speedmaster. Let's get that BSA Gold Star in, assuming it's coming soon, which I think it is. And the Royal Enfield Super Meteor. Those are the four bikes in my shortlist. I move on, Steve. Question two. I really like this question, Steve, actually. Uh, every so often people do, do ask me this, and I, I, I have been told off a few times for this. I'm going to be completely honest with you. So what I say here, please don't take it as, uh, as any kind of advice. It is purely my opinion, because um, there will be people strongly disagreeing with me here. And 
I welcome all opinions. So anyone who agrees, anyone who disagrees with me, if you think I'm a fool for saying what I'm about to say, let me know. I will share your opinion. I will share your opinion in the next week's episode if you would like me to. Here we go. Freddie, your approach to safety gear, to me, it seems you're super relaxed about it, sometimes only wearing an open-faced helmet and no other safety gear. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Steve, if I go into town and I'm pootling around town off to the coffee shop, 30 miles an hour or so, you know, 15-minute ride, I'll wear an open-faced helmet with nothing else, just trainers, normal jeans and a T-shirt and just an open face helmet. Because my feeling with regards to riding with biking gear is that, it, look, if I'm doing speeds of a Vespa, if I had a Vespa and I'm doing the same speed that I would do if I owned a Vespa, then I will wear the clothes that I would wear on a Vespa. You know, if I had a Vespa and I'm pootling into town, going to the coffee shops, I'm not going out fully kitted out. Look, I'm not going out in biking boots and biking jeans with a, a biking jacket and gloves. I'm just going to pootle out. That's the beauty of a Vespa. It's jump on, jump off. And for me, it's the same with a motorbike riding around town. Look, if I'm going to a coffee shop and it's a 10, 15 minute ride away, and it's either just me going out or me going out to see some friends or me going out to the shops or me taking Monica on the back for a coffee, and it's going in town and it's 30 miles an hour casual riding, I will wear just a helmet and nothing else because if every time I want to just quickly pop out on the bike, it's a huge disincentive if you have to put on all of the gear all of the time. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to be bothered doing it. You know, I'll be like, oh, I'll just take the car, I'll just walk in. If I'm going to have to put the boots on, the jeans, everything, everything, every time I go out, regardless of how long it is. You know, and similarly, when I'm out in Southeast Asia, Bali, Thailand, you happily do 40 miles an hour and the mopeds out there and every single person to a person without any fail at all only wears flip-flops, shorts and a vest. It doesn't matter if you're an 80-year-old man, an 18-year-old lady, or if you've got your entire family on the bike. You go out and you just put on a helmet nothing else at all and for me there's no difference in the danger that comes from riding at 30 to 40 miles an hour on a Vespa compared to the danger that comes from riding at 30 to 40 miles an hour on a Bonneville Look, if I go for longer rides on a Bonneville 70 miles an hour on a motorway I'll go fully kitted out but if it's shorter rides in the town I don't feel the need look I know it is slightly more risky but for me it's uh, I can deal with that in my mind. I mean, I think I've said it before, but you know, I remember being in Tenerife, going down the volcano in Tenerife, huge, about 200 riders. I was one of them for an Easter ride out. There were cyclists overtaking us. We were doing 35 miles an hour. Cyclists overtaking us, doing 45 miles an hour down the volcano. And they were wearing full light cred just with a helmet. You know, so what's more dangerous? You know, for me, it's, it's the speed. It's not the vehicle itself that makes it dangerous. You know, no one would bat an eyelid for a cyclist doing 35 miles an hour, which is more than possible on a bicycle. And for me, there's no difference there. But I welcome any opinion. Uh, let me know your thoughts because it is, it's always, always polarizing and you get incredibly strong opinions from either side. So I'll read them out with great interest next week if I have anything fun to read out. Right, I move on to Stephen. Freddie. 
I was just listening to your current podcast and thought I'd comment on motorcycle subscription services. Look, personally, I think it's an underhanded way of bike manufacturers ensuring they receive more income once the bike's sold. In no way can this be positive. If the bike manufacturers are going to standardize the bikes and make them with the same functions on every bike, but turn off the software, then the price of the bike will have to go up so they can still turn a profit on the electronics which have then been fitted, which have been fitted. They will have to do this just in case the biker doesn't sign up to the subscription and to prevent them losing money on each bike. However, if a buyer decides to subscribe to the heated grips, for instance, then the manufacturer will receive the increased costs of the bike and the extra income for the subscription. In other words, the biker is getting, or the buyer is getting screwed over twice. See, you know, I, I cannot argue with you here, Stephen. I can't, because th this is the exact uncomfortable problem that I have with this. Let's look at KTM. I know other brands are doing it as well. But if I've got a KTM, I personally, speaking from my own opinion, I'm the kind of rider that likes everything stripped back. I don't want anything electric on my bike because I know it, it all breaks eventually. Everything electric breaks, in my mind. This is just my opinion. So I like it as simple as possible. And it's the same with cars as well. I just like things as simple as possible. That, that's what I always buy. I will always pick something with, with the absolute minimum level of tech spec. So for me to do this, I go out and I buy a KTM. And after that one month, I've decided, you know what? I don't want anything. But the problem is... I go to KTM and I say this and they be like, okay, Freddie, great. We'll turn off, turn off heated grips, turn off heated seat, turn off that extra XYZ traction control and we will turn off the quick shifter. Great. The problem is everything's on the bike. You know, when I'm holding the heated grips, the heated grips, the hardware, the heated grips are physically there. You know, the grip I'm holding onto, that's a physical thing. You know, that's not software, that's a physical heated grip. Use software to turn it off. But as Stephen said, everything there is physically on the bike. And I've got to pay for everything that's physically on the bike. Everything will have to be paid for by every single purchaser of the bike. You'll have to pay for everything, all of the hardware, because... KTM aren't going to be fitting all of this hardware, you know, the heated grips, the quick shifter, the, the, the extra wiring, all of this stuff. They're not going to fit it for free in the hope that some people buy it. It's not going to be a loss leader for them. We're all going to have to stump up the cost for this extra hardware on the bike, everything, uh, because it just wouldn't make business sense for KTM to fit all these physical extra bits, like the heated grips, like, for example, a quick shifter, to fit all of these physical bits to it and all of the wiring that goes to it, and then be like, oh, well, you, know, you don't need to pay for that because you may not use it. No, I still have to pay for the technology in these heated grips. It just, they end up turning off that technology with a, a click of a laptop. So... I've heard differing opinions on this, but Steve, Stephen, I have to say that I, uh, I agree with you. Uh, I don't want to sit on the fence with this. I do agree. I just, I don't fully 
see how it you know how it can make sense for manufacturers such as KTM to build these bikes and you need everything on that bike you need everything on that bike you know hardware wise for all of these optional extras already on the bike they won't be unscrewing this stuff off the bike you know they're not going to be unscrewing the the heated grips they're just going to press a button to turn it off and i can't see how that can be beneficial for prospective buyers from a cost point of view because it has to be paid for somehow again let me know your thoughts because i find that a really really interesting subject i'm moving on jb uh freddie hope you're well the modifying discussion oh yeah this is from last week when i said look if you modify a bike do it but do it in the knowledge that you will, you will not make a penny off the bike you may actually end up losing money if you modify a bike because buyers get freaked out not knowing what's happened to a bike and not knowing the history fully JB's reply. Freddie, the modifying discussion was interesting. I agree to a point. Yes, mechanics want stuff standardized so they can refer to Haynes workshop manuals. However, if you modify a bike, if you modify it right, then it can transform a classic bike and make it even easier to maintain yourself. There is a complete dichotomy now between poor quality eBay modded bikes and high-end custom that's charged at an elevated premium. Also, custom fashion has changed in the last 10 years, and that's marooned many a chopper or 90s street fighter. The difference is now a perceived cachet, exclusivity, and quality of components. With electrics, specifically, then old bikes, old bike electronics are trash. But we can now buy off-the-shelf full electric looms and dashes that also simplify the old-fashioned relays and fuses of the original. So, so long as you have a diagram for the new loom, then, firstly, the electrics are less likely to go wrong, and secondly, the wiring is simpler and faults easier to identify. In fact, bad old wiring is one of the reasons old bikes come off the road and disappear. Many who think they've got a dodgy carb say are actually suffering poor electronics and voltage issues. No one likes electronics, but that need not be the way. A new and up-to-date wiring loom can transform the ownership of old bikes and keep more on the road. Dive in, Freddy. Yeah, JB, that's a good point. I'm going to be completely honest. I... I actually didn't know you could buy modernized wiring looms. I, of course, knew you could buy an old wiring loom, you know, original part. But, you know, looking at, looking at a classic old bike, you know, maybe from the 80s, where the wiring will be completely atrocious and shot to pieces and probably mauled up and, and you know, Frankensteined by five previous owners on a budget like I often am, but if you can buy a whole new wiring loom, modernized wiring loom, yeah, that makes a difference. And also, JB, I do agree because I'll be honest, I've wasted way too much time recently looking at Land Rover Defenders. And it's very obvious if you're looking long enough what the poorly modified Defenders look like, you know, where it's been passed down through three or four different owners and every single owner's given their DIY attempt at modifying it, most with about the same level of expertise as myself, i.e. very small. Uh, and, you know, you're getting some butcher-level jobs there with, you know, I said it before, but Frankenstein levels of, of looks with these defenders. 
And then you get a Defender that's been properly modified, properly modernized. You know, it could be a Defender from 1994, but it looks like a Defender from 2012 because it's been restored, brought back to life to such a fine example. And you can see all of the, the history with it. And they sometimes even take pictures of the restoration. Then that's very different. And that, that is something I would consider. So yeah, JB, your point taken very well. One other point I want to add. God, the quality of parts is so important. I know I always talk about it, but you know, it's it's often hard for potential buyers in the market to understand if a modified bike has actually been modified to a high standard. It's often hard in pictures to tell that. Sometimes you only realise, you know, a month down the line when hold on, bugger, you know, the electrics have gone or there's there's rust on all of these aftermarket parts. You know, and sometimes after a lot of the time. Aftermarket parts are worse than original parts, and I know this from what I've done to to destroying my Bonneville, which I'm now trying to rectify with with uh, either original parts or some Motone parts, for example, which is one of the high-end modifiers. But, you know, I've spent a decent chunk of money now getting rid of those really bad quality old parts on my bike, and I've I've learned a lot that... It's worth paying the extra for parts for your bike because there is no point modifying your bike with parts that are worse than the parts, the original parts on your bike. That's what I did. Sounds like madness. Uh, so there's a huge difference. You know what JB says, you know, for me, I'm, I'm guilty of that. eBay modifications, you know, and don't let those get conflated, get mixed up with a proper quality custom motorcycle it's just for us for us you know people in the market the consumers making sure that we know the difference because i'll be honest a lot of the time i'm looking at modified bikes i do look at a lot of harley davidson's i'm looking if it's modified i'm thinking oh god do i trust the person that's modified it i hope so i move on thanks jb right oh this will be the final one you know what i've got Still, got, I've got quite a few really interesting emails to come. So apologies, anyone, if I don't get to you in this week's one. Next week's one, I promise I will get to yours. I want to end. Diego in Spain. Let's end here. This will be a nice place to end this one. Hi, Freddie. I'm writing from Santiago de Compostela in Spain. I've only been riding my Yamaha XSR125 for a year with my car driver's license, which I've had for about 20 years now. And I'll be sitting my A2 theory test in a month or so. After that, I'm planning on taking my time with the practical lessons and hopefully passing my circuit and road tests at some point during the summer of 2023. After that, I'm thinking of getting a bigger bike, used most likely, and the Triumph Bonneville is one of my favourites and suitable for the A2 licence. Do you think it's a good first big bike after the 125? I was also thinking of getting the Triumph Street Twin as it's lighter and likely easier to handle than the Bonneville. My other options are the Honda Rebel 500, the Moto Guzzi V7, or the new Royal Enfield Super Meteor 650 when it comes out. On top of the usual riding, city riding, and trips to the beach, I'd like to do some long-distance trips with it, at least through Spain and Portugal, the first being the Camino de Santiago on a bike from Santiago de Compostela to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in France. So, my priorities are ease of use, 
comfort and safety. I value the slipper clutch and traction control of the Triumphs over the others. Okay, Diego, first, firstly, I think you've got superb taste in bikes. You know, for someone who's only been riding for a year, to already have that short list of bikes and to be on the Yamaha XSR 125, which is, in my opinion, very possibly one of one of the coolest looking 125s. Uh, that's a very good choice, 125. I've seen that in the flesh. And to, to break it down, to narrow it down to that short list, I think that's a superb list you've got there. I really don't think you can go wrong with any of them. But if I look at this, there's one bike I may immediately take out. And it's almost a shame for me to say this. I possibly, Diego, would take out the Honda Rebel 500. And the reason for that, all of the other bikes are going to be incredibly user-friendly, incredibly easy to ride for a, a new big bike rider. Um, I can see you're not sure about the Bonneville as a first big bike. Well, I promise you the Bonneville is so tame and easy to ride, it will be easier to ride than the bikes that you're actually going to take your test on. With regards to the Bonneville over the Street Twin, Yes, the Street Twin uh, is slightly lighter. It's probably slightly easier to ride, but the difference is so small with regards to ease of riding. Both of them you'd be completely confident on in a very, very short amount of time, and both are excellent beginner bikes. But this is the difference here, and this is why I would discount the Honda Rebel 500. The Motor Guzzi V7, the Bonneville, the Triumph Street Twin, and the Royal Enfield Super Meteor. All of these bikes are excellent bikes in their own right, and all of them feel like proper full-size motorbikes, whereby you're not going to be looking at any other big full-size motorbikes and thinking, oh, damn, I wish I bought that. You know, they are brilliant end bikes. I mean, look at me with the Bonneville. You know, I've gone from 130 horsepower, you know, super naked bike. I've been riding 11 and a half years, and I've got the Bonneville, you know, little... 65 cc uh, 65 uh, horsepower bike with 865 cc engine and that's my dream bike and that's the great thing about the motor goodsy the triumph the royal enfield they can be your beginner bike and your forever bike that they are really that good these bikes whereas the rebel 500 it doesn't quite have the looks of the Rebel 1100. For me, the Rebel 500, it looks like a small version of a bigger bike. It looks like it's a stepping stone bike. So if you go out and buy the Honda Rebel 500, it, you're probably going to want to be switching it up in a year or so. So for me, I would just skip that step and I would go for either the Motor Guzzi, the Triumph, or the Royal Enfields. And you won't go wrong with any of them. The only thing I would say is the Triumphs, whether it's the Street Twin or the Bonneville, for me, they're slightly better bikes than the V7. Um, slightly more power means they are a bit more relaxed on the motorways. The slightly bigger physical size means that if you ever take a passenger, the seat is longer so it's much more comfortable for a pillion to jump onto the back of one of those and now the the royal enfield super meteor that's a curveball because that bike's not out yet and i have the same taste in bikes diego as you and i'm curious about this as well because that 
if that goes as well as it looks, I'm not talking about super fast. I'm just talking, does it have the character? You know, is it good enough to ride? I don't need anything ridiculously dynamic, but does it give you that feeling? You know, could it be a modern day interpretation of the, the now, you know, not being sold Harley Davidson 883 Sportster, but with just enough of the modern day technology to make it pleasant, make it something you can trust to do, you know, European tours on. That's the curveball there. Do you wait for the super meteor? Because my guess is these are going to fly off the shelves. You know, there's a very strong market there especially in the UK for the Bonnevilles, you know, there are a huge amount of them available. And, you know, you can get a lovely Bonneville for £4,000. Similarly, probably Motor Guzzi V7 used one about £5,000 or so. Super Meteor, maybe £7,000 or so. So they're all in and about the same price bracket. It's just you want a slightly more dynamic style of bike where you really get to a bend and you want to attack it of the Bonneville, the streets when the Moto Guzzi, or the slightly more laid back vibes, probably slightly cooler looks actually, of that super meteor. And that will come down to personal preference. But Diego, any of those bikes you've said, maybe I just remove that Honda Rebel, even though I'm sure it's an excellent bike. Any of the, the other ones you've got, I think they will tick all of your boxes and you'll be over the moon with it. The very best of luck. Diego with doing a test. I hope everything goes brilliantly. Right, I will wrap it up there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Have an amazing week all, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.